Porter and on behalf of Steve Rolnick and Angela Watkins, I would like to welcome you to the Motivational Interviewing and Beyond podcast. This episode, we talked about behavior change and we wondered if that's all that matters or are we missing the, the markers? Are we missing something um, when all we do is focus on outcomes, behavior change, things we can measure and see? Uh, we were joined by um, Heather Flynn at Florida State University and Kathy Gumas in Northern Ireland, two uh, close friends and colleagues, as well as some other folks from the audience to, um, to come along and help us create more questions about a topic that um, is a lot bigger than we thought it would. Steve also... Um, has a few things to say and uh, drops pretty big bomb on the MI world about some upcoming changes. So we hope you have a listen and enjoy and please share this with your colleagues and friends and students and any feedback you have, please let us know. You ready to go, Steve? Yeah, whenever you are. All right, let's do it. Okay, good morning, good day, good night, wherever you are, good evening. Um, Welcome to our Motivational Interviewing and Beyond webinar. I don't know what number this is, but I know we've been doing it well into over a year now. And I'm Joel Porter, and I'm here with my good friend, Steve Rolnick and Ange. And we have a couple of uh, friends and guests that are gonna join us today. And we have a topic that hopefully will be um, expansive for all of us. And we welcome everybody's thoughts and ideas and if you're interested in joining the conversation and coming on as a panelist, please let us know. We've already um, we've already got Julio um, and El Paso teed up, so hopefully we'll have some more folks towards the end. Um, but welcome, everybody. We're delighted that you're here. Uh, folks from all over the world, um, every month I'm surprised that we're still doing this. And the reason Steve and I like to do this is because it's fun. And, um, and meaningful at the same time. But it's at this point, it's not just Steve and I, it's all of us, because we, we, have, we have quite a few friends that come along every month. So welcome. So um, I'm Joel, I'm in Christchurch, New Zealand. I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, been around motivational interviewing for a long time, but I do much more than that. And spent a lot of time working in alcohol and drug over my career and probably will keep doing it. I can't seem to get out of it. Um, so anyway, that's me. And I'll introduce, let Steve introduce himself. Well, Joel's already done that, but I'm Steve Rolnick and I'm also a clinical psychologist. I'm speaking to you from Cardiff, Wales. Grew up in Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, I've been involved in motivational interviewing most of my days. Um, and now I work mostly in sport. All right. So before we get going, um, I think I think we'll go ahead and 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 put the idea of the guardians of the national treasure out in everybody's mind. Um, and Ange will post up a link to uh, where you can get more information and make a donation. But I, I want Steve to elaborate a little bit more about Ralph and the work that he's doing down in South Africa. Yeah, we've got this friend, Ralph Bovers, who's uh, working in a, a, a township in Cape Town that's bedeviled with high levels of violence and deprivation. 
and he's one. He's he's running a very creative and vibrant uh, project, sport, nutrition, exercise project there. So we support him. So although this webinar is free, we invite you to um, make a donation to what is called the Guardians of the National Treasure. Those are children, and right now the focus is is on sport and gardening and so on, but it's also on feeding because times are not easy right now. We'll remind you about this again towards the end of the webinar and just put the URL into the chat column there. And um, if you feel like it, please donate. We promise you that Ralph Bovis actually personally goes to uh, a bank and collects the money and it is well spent. Uh, I can vouch for that. So thank you very much. Thank you, Joel. You're more than welcome. Hey, we had a request, Steve, if we could speak up a little bit more. Um, so I'll just pull my microphone a little bit closer to me. Um, let me know if that's okay, and, um, and, and then we can make some adjustments as we go. I assume um, I'm right. I assume I'm all right, my volume. If I'm not, if somebody could please tell us, okay? Okay. All right. We just want to make sure everybody, everybody has equal access. To the conversation, that's for sure. Let's get going, man. Let's do it. All right. So um, we don't really have much housekeeping to um, to say. Just put your thoughts and your questions into the chat. We'll thanks, Florence. We'll do the best we can to um, to approach them. And as you all know, we go for an hour and a half, and then we um, continue the conversation after the after the show's over, so to speak. Um, but anyway, we have a topic today around um, around behavior change, and um, and 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 what are we actually talking about, and are we missing the mark, just focusing on behavior? Um, and this was one of those topics that uh, came to me when we had uh, Brendan Murphy from Ireland on, and he said something along the lines of emotion being at the heart of behavior change. And that got me interested in a question about what are we talking about and are we missing the mark on what we're trying to measure and an outcome, whether it's in counseling or school or um, sport. Is that all we're looking for, someone just to change their behavior? Um, and so what that, that had me has had me think in the last few weeks is, is that the tip of the iceberg? Is that, is it, is it, do we want to have things that, that we can quantify or see the change because it's really hard to, to measure the qualitative things um, around behavior change and what that means. And, um, and I guess what I ended up with Steve yeah. was more, que was more questions. Yeah. Um, and is this just a term that we've kind of foreclosed on um, and just kind of kept around and we just keep using behavior change because that's what we've always done or is yeah. there more to it? Yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to be too much of a devil's advocate, but I also, you know, also wonder this, Joel. Look, the, the focus, a focus on behavior change has got a formidable logic or rationale to it in the sense that, you know, there, there are few teachers, parents, sports coaches whose patience isn't tested by difficult behavior. So there's an issue there. And, you know, in healthcare, there's, there's hardly a, a single disease or condition 
that will not be prevented or ameliorated by people behaving differently. So that, that's a rationale for focusing on behavior. Now, I know that in the motivational interviewing field, we've been criticized um, by people who consider motivational interviewing, for example, as some kind of neoliberal cop-out, whereby the individual is blamed for social ills. Uh, that I just don't agree with, because I would only say, look, you know, spare a thought for healthcare practitioners out there in marginalized communities. Would you expect them to ignore, for example, poor diet, poor adherence to antiretroviral therapy or something like that? So what I'm saying is behavior change is a real issue. And a focus on it is not a neoliberal cop-out with motivational interviewing. I don't agree with it. But there's a formidable logic to focusing on behavior change. So, you know, um, I, I've got reservations, which I'll express later, but I just wanted to, to uh, you know, get us debating here, Joel, because you've got some concerns, clearly. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't, um, I hadn't thought about the politics of it all, but I, I can definitely see where, where, where that argument could enter the picture from a sort of a neoliberal agenda. Um, and I, I, I don't know that, I don't know that, um, it sounds like it'd be an interesting conversation, but I think it might be kind of circular if we got into it. And I'm, yeah. I'm more interested in the practical side of, of this and, you know, and obviously working, spending so much time in my career that I have working in drug and alcohol, there's the behavior change that you want, that you, that you hope people will move towards, which is drinking, changing their drinking or their drug use into a non-harmful place, whether that's quitting or cutting down or swapping substances, whatever it is, right? Yeah. And, and that's something you can measure and quantify. And that is a behavior change, taking less, less amount, less frequently, um, causing less disruptive behaviors in their lives and the lives of other people. You know, but there's more to it than, than just that. I, at least I'd like to think that there's more to it than just, I'm gonna change my behavior. Um, and if that's all there is, then I guess that's good. But I don't think it is. I don't think it's an either or, Steve. I think there's a both and in there. That it's not just about changing your thoughts to change your behavior. That on some level, there's there's more of a personality or, I don't know, um, psychological, psyche sort of something going on in that world that is, that's important too. Where emotion and all of that comes in and meaning and purpose and values so you are you're a little bit worried and have got an intuition that there's a downside there is a downside to focusing on behavior change and that's something we're going to explore yeah i think i think that's just a really broad brush or maybe it's a narrow brush to paint with that all we're looking for is behavior change okay, um, okay. but yeah so that's what i'd love to explore with you and with um Kathy and with Heather and Alan's here and Julio and loads of people are showing up. They probably have lots of ideas about this. Let's so as, as usual, I have more, we have more questions than answers. Yeah. Excellent. I mean, I'm, I'm dying to carry on the conversation, but I'd much prefer us to meet some of our guests and, and uh, get moving with other people's voices. All right. Well, how about we, uh, we bring Heather on? Lovely. Okay, well, so I'd like to introduce um, a, a very good friend and um, colleague and fellow MI person, um, 
Heather Flynn down in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, and I'll, I'll let you provide any introduction you want for yourself. Um, and what are your thoughts and reflections on where we're at right now and what you've been thinking about, Heather? And it's great to see you. It's so great to see you all. And I'm recognizing so many of the names on the list. It's wonderful to have a lot of friends on the call. And of course, it's an honor to be here with Steve and Joel and Kathy and Ange. And I really appreciate the chance. Um, yes, I'm in Tallahassee, Florida, where it's very hot and storming as usual in the summer here. Um, so it's interesting, your topic uh, is behavior change all that matters. And I have to admit that I'm coming from this as a psychologist, as a psychotherapist, and somebody working in mental health in particular with depression. So my pathway to becoming a clinician did not start with behavior change. It started more with emotion. So I first kind of got into therapy, helping people change the way they think and the way they feel. I learned the behavior change part a little bit later, which was an interesting progression. And interestingly enough, most people who come to see somebody like me in a counseling situation don't come in saying, I wanna change my behavior, <laughs> quite the opposite. They wanna feel better and they wanna be closer to their people. So interpersonal and emotional reasons are the reasons they're coming in to see somebody like me, I think it's sometimes bad news for them that they need to change some behaviors uh, in order to get there. One of those behaviors is often adhering to medication. Um, so, it, you know, I have a different, you know, pathway. Now, of course, in my evolution as a therapist, I came to understand that changing behavior is vital to feeling better and to being closer to the people that you need to be close to, the two reasons people come in for help. Um, obviously, behavior change and a lot of motivational interviewing people are here occurs in a context. It occurs in a motivational context. It occurs in an emotional context. You know, changing behaviors is one of the most difficult things a person can do. Uh, they have to have a pretty good reason to embark on that. And those reasons are often emotional and interpersonal. Um, you know, humans all have two things in common. They want to feel good and they want to feel not alone, right? So um, sometimes those emotional reasons are fear-based. Uh, sometimes it's related to things they really care about, like their connections. Um, so, you know, I, I think about behavior as, uh, it, you know, among four important things, closeness to others, the way we think, our cognitions, the way we feel our emotions and then behavior change. So I never thought of it as the most important or the only thing. Now, again, as I get more and more into the psychotherapy world and the, the research literature, we know that changing behaviors is a very effective way to change thoughts and, and feelings, right? So they, they're all related. You know, those of you who are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy know that we have a cognitive triad, thoughts, behavior, emotion, they all affect each other. Um, so it's something that is an important part of the, of the puzzle, um, a vital part of the puzzle. Um, you know, in my early days as a therapist, I was most interested in people changing their, you know, getting insight about why they do things and, you know, um, thinking about things differently. But again, I'm convinced now that they also have to make some changes to feel better, especially in the in the case of depression. 
you know, the, the more depressed a person feels, the, the less they engage in behaviors that would otherwise make them feel better. Being with their friends, being physically active, taking their medicines, that kind of thing. So we think of behavior change and we call it behavior activation as a way to prime the pump, prime the emotional pump. Um, so if you do a little bit to make you feel a little better, then you feel like doing more things that would make you feel better and so on. So behavior change is a really important part. But again, that emotional component, you know, I, I don't know how much time we have, but we could probably argue all day about, you know, is emotion or behavior more important? They're both important. You know, they're both, they work hand in hand. Um, and most effective therapies, again, work both on the emotional and on the behavioral and on the interpersonal level. I'm, I practice something called interpersonal psychotherapy, which is a very effective treatment for depression, just as effective as antidepressants. And the one thing that we do is change people's interpersonal behaviors, the way they ask people for what they need, the way they communicate. We see communication as a behavior change. Um, it's very different from the substance use world that thinks about it as changing your use behaviors, but how you get what you need and communicate to other people is a behavior that we work on in psychotherapy as well. Um, so I want to throw in the interpersonal behaviors, the communication style, things like that is really important as well. And then I, the final thing I'll, I'll throw out there is just in the cognitive domain. I mean, clearly the way we respond and behave at least in the anxiety part of the brain is very fear-based. And, and that's based on how we perceive something, like how we appraise what's going on. And so you can't act differently if you don't perceive or appraise things differently. So if you don't perceive something as a threat, you're more likely to act in a way that's gonna be helpful. But if you perceive it as a threat, you're more likely to avoid or retreat and behave a different way. And there's a lot of neuroscience behind that that's I know very little about, but I know it exists. Um, so yeah, so at least in mood and anxiety disorders, we see, and interestingly enough in depression, we don't, we started off as a field not even measuring behavior at all. We measured emotion, you know, mood, uh, affect. How do you feel? Do you feel down? Do you feel depressed? That's what we've measured, but now we get into measuring behavior. So it's very interesting to be connected with the substance use folks who have always started with the behavior. Um, so I'll be really interested to hear what Kathy has to say and what everybody else has to say on this issue. Uh, I think I will wrap up there. I was told to be brief, so. You, uh, I think you primed the pump really well there. Um, and there are a few things that, uh, that you said that kind of really caught my attention and, and stood out to me. But, I, but before I jump in, I want, I want to hear Steve's reflections on on what you said, Heather, and then we'll bring Kathy in. You're muted, Steve. You're still muted, Steve. <laughs> you turn, there you go. I tried, yeah, I tried. It takes a while. You good, man? No, I just felt like it's a very, that was a very well-rounded and thoughtful rationale for integrating a focus on behavior, different kinds of behavior with the way someone feels and the way they perceive the world. You know, and then and listening to Heather, I kind of, and thinking about why Joel wanted to have a webinar on this topic, I kind of think, well, what's the problem, Joel? 
what is the problem? I th- I've got a view about that, but I'm going to hold back, right? But listening to Heather, I just thought, yeah, okay. There, 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 there's a clinical psychologist presenting a very tolerant and well-rounded explanation. So what's the big deal, Joel? Let's 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 see what you think or see what, you know. We don't want this to be an echo chamber where we all agree, and I won't let it become that because I've got some serious reservations. So I'm just well, winding you up. Yeah, no, that's fine. I don't, I don't, I don't mind getting wound up a little bit. And I think, I think my issue with this, with this whole behavior change thing is, it's probably more around policy and more around um, funding and expectations of what counselors, teachers, coaches, psychologists, social workers, nurses, doctors are supposed to be able to do that there's something magical or mystical that we do that creates a behavior change. And that's all that uh, funding bodies want to pay for, you know, parents might want to see correction systems can measure and therefore they can, they can, they can, you know, um, see if there's a difference. And I think when you use a phrase like we want to see a behavior change, all of that formula that Heather was just talking about, it just washes it away. Totally. You know? Yeah. You know, I've been over the last over the last month, I've been this will kind of fit, I hope. I've been really interested in what existed before the Big Bang and trying to trying to imagine nothing coming, something coming from nothing. And and so I've been kind of doing this little reading, listening. YouTubing and trying to listen to what these cosmologists and physicists have to say about it. And basically, and, and I was thinking about this while Heather was talking, is, is what we do is the more we know, sometimes the least we understand. So a lot of times we start, you know, saying, okay, we'll, we'll just change the behavior. Then you realize there's so much other stuff behind that, that, that we have to take into account in our formula Stint continues to expand. So if we're thinking about emotion, uh, cognition, uh, values, meaning, purpose, and behavior in life, then that's a lot. That's a that's a lot of ground to cover just to see somebody do something different and say okay. that, okay, we can tick that box. So that's where I guess I come from, is that we, we try to oversimplify it sometimes. I, I think it's deeper and more disturbing than that. So I won't have any difficulty articulating it. I could try if you like, but I don't want to um, cut across the delightful kind of conversation, you know, we've had with Heather and we're probably going to have with uh, Kathy in a moment. So you're the chief here today and tell us where you want to go next, my man. Well, I I want to... um, I think there is a deeply disturbing element to this. Okay, well, good. We'll we'll definitely get that, but I I want to... I like the foreshadowing there. And and we'll say that we'll say that until we'll see if maybe Kathy hits your point. So um, so <laughs> where do we go? Um, so do you want to bring on Kathy and introduce her? Sure. Hey, here's our friend Kathy Gumas, who is uh, uh, from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Kathy's an old friend, a motivational interviewing trainer, and a lot more. Um, and I know that she's got a background in nursing and quite a few other fields. 
And she's got a foreground and also in many fields of healthcare, mental health, addiction. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Steve. It's uh, lovely to be back and thank you for the invitation. And I'm just um, trying to gather my thoughts a little in the sense of listening to Heather's lovely um, descriptions there and Joel's questions and your sort of uh, um, reactions might be, for me, I'm sort of thinking when you invited me on, I thought, well, what's that question mean? Behavior change, is that all that matters? And I thought my my brain going down in through mazes of, well, what does that actually mean? And I'm still not sure I understand what the the tension or dilemma is here, Joel, that, that's um, disturbing you in many respects. I suppose I started to think about, well, Behaviour change, yes, for me, it's one element. But as you said, Steve, I, um, my professional background's in nursing. So my, my training is one of a, a sort of holistic approach, you know, seeing the whole person. So it's very much the physical, the, the, the mental, the, the social and the spiritual. And, yeah. and, you know, nursing that art form of, of trying to think and work and help be a good helper really with um, people um, drives, I suppose, my thinking. And as I listened to Heather talk and Joe mention um, Brandon Murphy's uh, focus on emotion, a, a little quote came to my mind about, well, you know, um, quite mostly people don't remember what you say, but they remember how you make them feel, right? So that's what is really, you know, your memory. And in my work in many di different areas, but pre predominantly in substance misuse, predominantly at the, the extreme end of that and within a, a, a you know, a, a specialist sort of dedicated um, addiction treatment um, across community and inpatient and also within the prison system, you know, that sort of uh, biopsychosocial model was just you know, critical. So it's more than just behavior for me, for sure. And it's, you know, if someone isn't able to, uh, you know, physically sort of uh, engage, you need to help first, you know, so that your helping starts at all, all different points along the way. And um, Another thought really about MI and where MI comes in is that in my experience of working with people, wherever I have met them along their, their points of need, um, it works very much from the inside out, as opposed to focusing purely on behavior, it's about evoking. And it's really, for me, it's that sort of evoking someone's desires and plans for living in a more fulfilling way. Um, and helping, I think MI helps people change in directions that they prefer rather than be pressed or pulled by other people or external influences. So that's really where I'm in my maze of your question, behaviour change, is that all that matters? Um, thinking about, well, no, it's not only about behaviour, it's, it's very much about that fulfilment, that whole person and where that takes us to. Um, and the only other point that's popping into my head at this point is the, um, 
the measures bit that you talked about, because research obviously, um, you know, in some of my recent conversations of very ambitious programs that people are trying to uh, take forward. Uh, and I had a very interesting conversation just um, last week with uh, an initiative in, a, in Switzerland and the prison system there. And, you know, one of their constraints was how they were going to measure uh, the actual um, improvements that bar, you know, bar measuring someone's physical sort of biological markers and, and what they're telling you. So those qualitative measures, I think, um, are something that needs a lot more work and a lot more development. And there's probably lots out there that I don't know about, but I'd be interested to hear from the community that's joined us tonight and from, from you folk. So. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, it sounds a lot like you and Heather, there's a lot of convergence and, and the essence of it is that, that this is not just about your approach when you're speaking to somebody in therapy or counseling. It's not just about behavior change, it's about the person and the person comes first and, and the way they feel and the way they think impacts their behavior. And it sounds like you and Heather are, are, are in accord there. So what's the problem? And uh, I do think there's a wider problem. And I, if, Joel, would you permit me to try and articulate it? I would love for you to try and articulate it. I think it's quite disturbing, you know, because I think, as I've said, the logic of focusing on behavior is quite formidable, the rationale. It's, it's, it's quite a formidable rationale because we, we come across issues with behavior in just about whatever walk of life we're involved in. But I think it's led to a descent into what you could call target culture. Okay, so this is right out, this is outside of therapy and, and, and helping. And this also has, a, has an equally formidable logic to it. You oblige people to maintain good behavior using a sort of a variations of a carrot and stick approach. So you get stars for good behavior at home, right? Punishment or whatever for bad behavior. And you get promotion for hitting targets at work. So it's like, it's like there's somebody else knows what's good for you and you'd better follow their directives in order to make your way through the system, the home, whatever it is. And, and, and I feel that this approach to behavior change has seeped its way into education. There's star systems and reward systems that run right through the university system. It, school education I'm less familiar with, but I believe the same applies there. Healthcare, the, the, the invasion of, of, of a target culture in healthcare is pervasive. Sports, I see it all the time. You get the outcome, good on you, good stuff. You don't get the outcome, you lose your contract. That's in, 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 in elite sport. And at home. So, and there's a paradox here, which is not a paradox, but it's something that's funny. It does work to some degree, this kind of carrot and stick approach to behavior change. It does work. Otherwise, I imagine it wouldn't be used. And I've seen one of my kids recently responding very well to targets and stuff like that. But I think many people fail to thrive 
um, because they're not able to compete in that way and to compete with the best. And I, so I find the focus on behavior change in the wider cultures in which we live quite disturbing. Okay. So, and, and you could say, okay, so there's two different worlds here. There's this wider world of health and education and home life where there's an inappropriate focus on healthcare. But when it comes to the world of psychotherapy, don't worry about it because there's wonderful people like Heather and Kathy um, who've got a well-rounded view of it. Well, I'm not so sure about that either. I'm not so sure about that either. I, I, I worry about practitioners who become um, obliged to focus on behavior change and who prematurely focus on it and push people uh, to consider behavior change. And even practitioners of something as apparently artful and humane as MI getting um, sucked into focusing on we've got to get this person to change their behavior. So I think even in the world of therapy, it's a bit of a worry. Um, and then there's this question about motivational interviewing. So why is motivational interviewing so popular? But that's something, you know, that's maybe for MI nerds and maybe that's not for this webinar, but I'll be happy to speak to that. Why, what is it that motivational interviewing offers and why is it, it, has it been so as popular it has, as it has been? But I worry a lot about uh, uh, the cultures in which we live and being driven by targets. Um, mm. I think it, de it dehumanizes people and it, 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 it relegates a lot of people who fail to thrive under such systems. There you go. End of rant. Heather, what do you think about that? What are your thoughts? What, what came up for you? It's fascinating. I think it's very, you know, extremely interesting to, to, to think about, you know, and I'll just speak for the United States, I guess, and in, in the state of Florida, where if you ask every single person who works at any agency or healthcare system, they'll tell you that they're using motivational interviewing, just as Steve was alluding to. And the, and the reason they're doing that is probably the wrong reason, as you were saying. I mean, they, they want to get people to engage in different levels of care, or they want to get people to do things that they feel like they should do participate in child welfare programs, get into drug abuse treatment, um, do their medications, uh, adhere to their medications. So that's why motivational interviewing, in my view, and I work with a lot of the state agencies, that's why it's being pushed uh, in all these different settings. Now, when if you actually can get in there and get somebody who truly does know about motivational interviewing, you know, there's another component of it, right? For those of us who are familiar with it, which is the values piece of it. Um, so what does that person really care about? You know, what do they, what's important to them? What makes them tick? And I think that it, it, it can bring a little of that humanity to conversations um, in all these different kinds of settings, but that's not what people are really doing, unfortunately, as MI gets rolled out and disseminated it does become a way to get people to do things you think they should do. And it misses that values human-based component. Um, so I'll just, I have other things on my mind, but I'll leave it at that. I'm interested in the other panelists. Okay. 
Yeah, no, Steve, what, what really jumped out for me, and it's, I, I always like that moment when somebody articulates a thought that or a feeling or something that I haven't expressed or I hadn't pulled the words together around this topic. And that was exactly it. It was that we know what the outcome, the best outcome is for you. And the younger the people are, the more authoritative we become with that. <clears throat> and then something that, um, that I learned from our, our good friend, Alan Zukoff, um, years ago when he was talking around confrontation, and we were talking about this in the context of MI, he said, you know, confrontation and these sorts of things that you're talking about, Steve, rely on intermittent reinforcement because sometimes they work. And when it works, we forget about all the times it doesn't work and the people that didn't benefit from it, or if it worked for us, then therefore it should work for everybody else. And I think this sort of what you were saying that we know what's best, here's what I think you should do, is it works for some people, but not everybody. And so therefore everyone needs to follow lockstep behind that. And that is scary. That is a frightening thing. And to see that something like motivational interviewing gets bent in a way to fit that approach is um, maybe corrupted in a way to fit that approach is um, is really kind of frightening. Yeah, you know, um, I, I want to say a couple of things about what I've learned in sport. Um, because I think there's some general lessons there. And perhaps a bit later, I can say a little bit about motivational interviewing, because I think we need to redefine it or refocus its, its, its uh, primary function. But that's, you know, and I'm happy to speak to that if you want to. But, you know, you know, I, I, do you remember that there was a book called The Inner Game of Tennis? I don't know if you ever remember it. Right? It's on my bedside table, I read. <laughs> Oh, I don't know whether you're joking. Galway, that's right. I'm know. joking. I'm joking, Steve. No, I don't know anything about the book. But it's written by somebody called Timothy Galway. And here's the, the essence of one of the arguments he makes, right? Which is don't focus on the outcome, get the process right. Okay? Which in that case is see ball, hit ball. Don't worry about where it's going, let alone who's going to win the point, Right? So running through high-quality sports coaching, and I believe from my observations of very talented teachers, is this simple truth, that if you, if you just focus on the process with somebody and help them get the process right, the outcome will be fine, okay? And it's not difficult to see the parallel there with good-quality psychotherapy. I mean, that's a justification for the sensitivity and eloquence of psychotherapy, which is they get the process right, and then the outcomes follow, okay? And that sits in sharp contrast to what you also see in sport, which is completely outcome-obsessed sports coaches, right? You, do, you see both of these approaches, and I guess what I'm saying is the one that's driven by targets um, toxifies yeah. the people involved in it. Everybody, including the coaches, yeah. and, ma and makes people unhappy, really unhappy, okay? Because they're all focused on the outcome, the outcome, and everybody's judging everybody else, okay, and competing with everybody else. And they lose the, the, the inner value of what it is they try and do, okay? That's in sport, 
And I believe it's exactly the same in education. If the kids are just focused on what their exam grades are, you're losing the beauty and the magic of what learning is about. And similarly, in motivational interviewing, if your focus is really on, I've got to get this person to change their behavior, you're losing it. It, it reminds me, Steve, of one of my sons who, um, when he was 15, he played rugby. And when he was 15, he was selected um, to be developed in the Ulster squad. And yeah. he started going to the, um, you know, the coaching camps and things like that. And, and, and within six months, um, he, he stopped going and he stopped playing rugby. Yep. We just lost the pleasure of the game. It was, you know, the discipline that was being um, sort of advocated uh, took all the pleasure away. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, his own sense of, um, you know, he, he, he prized his own abilities and that's why he'd been spotted. But uh, they were um, less, less pre maybe less seen as opposed to less present. So that was hard. Um, and I think that's the, you know, my experience in um, um, having been responsible for a range of services and therefore having the tension between um, performance management okay rather than outcomes so these targets that you're talking about that's what sort of resonated for me that just de does dehumanize a process by which uh, people waste time um doing lots of things mechanistically and bureaucratically to feed the beast as i call it and then they lose the heart of what they're doing so you know, I, I, I can, I've seen it over many years uh, and it's driven in multiple ways, multiple ways uh, through policies, through um, leadership, organizational, uh, professional, um, maybe this risk averseness <laughs> that um, has uh, dominated um, to try and um, almost control everything. So it's, it is, um, I'm not sure whether that's what you're referring to. Um, exactly, Cathy. Okay. It's exactly, you know, and Alan, if you look at the chat column, you'll see Alan Zokovs used the word trust. If you trust someone else, whether it's a young athlete, a student in class, your own child, you trust them to learn and to grow and you help them in that process, then the behavior will take care of itself. Yeah. Okay. And nobody wanted to, this is a weird thing. Nobody wanted to be a school teacher, sports coach, parent, because they wanted to manage behavior. That was never, that wasn't why I, I became a parent, you know? So it's not why the coaches go into it, yet they seem to get sucked into this this toxic culture. And um, so I, 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 I'm pretty, and as a number of people have pointed out, I mean, Heather, Heather's description shocked me, frankly, what she said about the state of Florida and the use of motivational interviewing. I find it truly shocking. And I think there's a, there's a way out of that, which I, you know, I'm happy to speak to. But this is quite disturbing. And I think Joel's absolutely right to kind of say, Steve, let's have a webinar on this topic. Good on you, Joel. Well, thank you.
Can I say one thing about it? Again, it was um, through um, service improvement and implementation science, part of work I'd done there. And I learned learned quite quickly that within organizational change, that creating a mindset of um, abundance as opposed to scarcity actually um, freed people up to actually engage in the process as opposed to manage a, a, a scarce resource. So for, you know, National Health Service here in, in the UK, it's under, you know, extreme, extreme pressure, very, um, very limited resources for a growing, growing demand in all sorts of areas. And therefore, the people who work within that system um, feel the burden and feel the pressure and feel r- responsible. And then the um, approaches that are these sort of, as I call them, production line approaches that are implemented to how a service should manage access, you know, have that first conversation. And that's an assessment rather than an engaging conversation. So designing your systems um, can either you know, you'll still get the same, you know, probably you'll get even better outcomes and you'll see more people if you can adopt that abundance. But it takes that trusting. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of, I, I've, you know, the scars on my back from working with a lot of teams who have, um, you know, struggled with that, letting go of con- that control and trusting the process, you know, and allowing people to just ring in rather than have to go, through five or six different hoops to actually even get through the door you know so there's um it's just the toxicity i don't know has it has it um has it gone too far yeah yeah i would agree with you totally that it has gone too far if you i don't want to take it to a depressing note, but uh, we're we're going there anyway. Uh, You know, if you work for any organization that's doing strategic planning or trying to figure out where to put their resources or energy, they're coming up with something called metrics. So how do you measure your success? And the metrics are these changes and number of, you know, grants, number of publications, number of, you know, dollars you bring in. And, you know, it's, it's completely going in the opposite direction in terms of the wisdom being discussed here what how do you um how do you really help people feel engaged and fulfilled in their work um mike clark in the chat brought up corrections that, that's another field uh, where it's completely focused on behaviors and outcomes in the way that we're we're talking about and no you know it doesn't really set up an opportunity for anyone to to thrive and I wasn't going to bring up David Rosengren, but I, I feel the need to right now because he and I have spoken about uh, the field of positive psychology. If you're familiar with that, it was, you know, back to some of Steve and Kathy's points, it, it's really kind of based on some, some observations and writings um, about exactly what you're saying. People feel happier and, and um, more, you know, more of a sense of meaning um, and belonging, if they're truly engaged in the process, <laughs> they're not focused on the outcome. And that, so we actually have a science behind this as, you know, something that leads to happiness and fulfillment versus the focus on the outcome. So it's, 
Joel, I don't know um, if you, you know, did this on purpose, but this is a brilliant topic. I, I don't do many things on purpose, as you know. <laughs> um, I just get lucky. Um, no, but it was. It's something that um, that, that that stood out. And and when um, Steve and I were talking before the webinar, he said he's going to ask me why I brought it up. I thought it was a good question, but I didn't know why. Um, and it's great to be having this conversation with everybody. Absolutely. Um, but I think it's important that we go into the, the dark side of, you know, the work that we do, no matter where, what, what profession we're coming from, <clears throat> mental health, health, education, corrections, is that they're, they're, it's, it's a layered thing because you have the clinicians and the teachers and the practitioners on the ground doing the work and then stacked on top of them are all of the processes, the fundings, the you know, everything on top of that, that drives the work that people do every day. And the, the concern is that the people who are making key decisions don't have all, don't have a, a rich enough understanding about the work that the people are doing on the ground to get the outcomes that they think are important. So in, in some ways it's that parallel process of what we think is best for the person, the student, um, we also think we know they we know best what's best for the psychologist, the teacher, the probation officer, etc. Um, and there's a, there's a misconnect sometimes that that can be really helpful. And I've noticed that working on funding projects, it's like, why are they even wanting to pay five million dollars for this thing that they haven't even talked to any workers about how to do the work? just because somebody thought it was a good idea. And it typically comes down to what you can measure is the outcome. So. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if now would be a good time to maybe bring up a couple people from the audience to expand the conversation a little bit more. I know we had talked um, uh, about bringing up um, Julio from El Paso in corrections, um, someone who's working in probation and corrections in the U.S., because as, as, as you had mentioned, and this is an area where behavior change is what everybody is wanting to see from the people in corrections to society at large. They want to see people engaging less in antisocial behaviors and more into pro-social behaviors. And can I just, before you do that, can I just highlight the fact that I'm not saying everything's grim, right? I think this is a very serious and toxic problem. But I think Kathy alluded to a different way of looking at this, this question of behavior change. I believe MI can and will increasingly embrace that and I'm happy to articulate that. But when we speak to people from corrections and I hope sport, I hope we'll realize that there's an overwhelmingly positive and evidence-based approach that is quite different, that works with people's strengths, that is founded on a quality relationship. So let's not get too gloomy here, okay? Absolutely. Okay. I was gonna I was gonna get us out of the depth. Good. But I, I think I just wanted to, to sit down in there for a second because we need to get to the practical side of why, what, what are some solutions or what makes it meaningful to keep going. Brilliant, Joe. 
Um, so, Ange, can you um, see if he's ready to come up? Some great comments going on in the... Um, oh, it says my internet connection is unstable. Um, am I, we are the solution if we stick with our values. Well, that's a good point, Alan. Alan, we'll have to cue you up, perhaps, to come up. Um, Hello. Nice to see you again. Likewise, likewise. Like to see everybody. Oh, welcome. How y'all doing? Um, very interesting topic. I, I, I really think that many value points have been made. Um, for, for us in the corrections realm, um, it, it's, it's holistic in our agency. Um, just think about, you know, change, right? Change causes crisis, crisis causes change. It, if we just think about that, that, that's not a corrections thing, that's not a medical thing. It, it, it's just being a human being. We all deal with change. And sometimes as practitioners, we forget that they have difficulties changing. Right. So we can't take it personal if they fail. Right. I mean, that's foundational to the spirit of motivational interviewing. Right. What happened to acceptance? So with that being said, I, I would say that when it comes to the topic of behavior change and if we're wondering what the stakeholders want and all that. Well, are they considering what the client wants? Right. In, in our department, I, I could tell you and I've said this story many times. I was one of the naysayers that this is the flavor of the month. This isn't going to work. And now I'm one of the trainers, you know, for the department, um, you know, and, and I can tell you I was working a lot harder when I didn't utilize motivational interviewing, right? I was more stressed out. But consider the notion for the need for the behavior. In the juvenile justice process, about 99.9% .9 were caught. They're not here because they want to. They're not here because, oh, here you go. I stole a car. Let me turn myself in and please help me do this behavior. I don't know. I no longer want to steal a car. I no longer want to do this. We need to get to the root of where is this motivation coming from, you know? And so I'm not going to say that there's people that don't want to change that are in the, in the juvenile justice realm, but before that, they need to get caught, Right. In the medical field, you have people that, you know, might need to make their change because they're going to die if they don't. So where does that motivation come from? Consider the why of the behavior. Why is that behavior needed? And this is something we tell all our participants. You can't treat a kid that stole a piece of bread because he needed to feed his uh, siblings because his mom is partying in Mexico and, and, and say, well, you stole all these groceries, it's over 50 under 500 and we're gonna put you in jail, right? We need to understand where that motivation came from. Considering the why in like a human trafficking victim, you know, and the department, one of the things that we're very proud of is that as of, you know, the start of motivational interviewing, we've dismantled nine human trafficking rings through the use of motivational interviewing, you know? And there are many of these 
juveniles who are being victimized, you know, and are victims of human trafficking that continue to live in that lifestyle even after they've been victimized, right? They, we place them somewhere, they run away. They start turning tricks because they figure, well, I can't get a job, I can't do anything, but I can use my body. So understanding the trauma that came with that and how they got engaged into that behavior in the first, in the first place. So the why of the behavior for our department is very important as to how we're now gonna work with them how we're now gonna address their matters, right? Doing a thorough assessment, understanding where, you know, their behavior began and then figuring out, okay, what is it that you have internally that we can utilize, you know, to make sure we can move you forward, right? One thing about our clients is, you know, people who have been trauma traumatized, they're gonna carry this into adulthood, you know? And if we don't deal with this behavior now, we're going to have worse adults in the future, right? So they never really find true peace. You know, their pain is always going to be there. So in a way, the way I see motivational interviewing is we need to identify the problem. We need to confront it and we need to heal it. But we need to do it in our terms, the terms that the client says, not our terms, what the client says, right? And, and in that, again, going back to the spirit of motivational interviewing, and so here for Heather and Joelle, you know, being my mint, you know, uh, trainers in Canada, um, you know, this was, this was at the core that when I went up there, you guys hit uh, the spirit a lot. And to me, one of the most important factors is acceptance. Accepting where the client stands and not judging, not because I say, well, you're a victim of human trafficking and I need to get you out of there. Well, victims of human trafficking usually tend to go back on average seven to nine times before they get out of that lifestyle. And I'm not gonna hold that and say, I'm a bad probation officer for not doing that. I'm a bad practitioner. We need to be patients. We need to understand why. Think about the dehumanization that they've actually endured, the traumas, the issues that have been going on with them and what's blocking them from moving forward. So when we look at the clients, we also need to understand where we're at. How are we when it comes to accepting? Right, it's interesting because we do need to have those biases out there. I could tell you a population I don't like to work with is gang members. And I give props to all those people that do. Because again, this is a perfect point to where it talks about behavior change and does that all, is that all that matters? You know, especially when you deal with gang members that are, you know, family-oriented. They have generations of membership in the gang. This kid might be like Payaso the Sixth. You know, that means that his great-grandpa, grandfather, father, you know, they were all involved in the gang. But we only get six months to fix them. Mm. But their environment, how do we fight against an environment? 
right? So consider the why, why he needs to continue in that lifestyle, right? And then, you know, with any change, again, change causes crisis, crisis causes change, right? We need to understand that with any challenge that we have, we should be growing and becoming more resilient as a person, as a human. So in turn, even when they fail and they relapse with any behavior, change is not all that matters because they learned, they understood, they grew, maybe not a huge stride, but now they tapped into a little bit of what's going on. And as far as measuring, I measure the connections that I make with these clients. Um, I, I'm not sure if we have time, but give you a quick story. I was uh, getting ready to terminate a juvenile, a female juvenile, and she, during uh, her probationary period, you know, maybe about two, three months in, she had a baby. She was pregnant when she committed the offense. Um, at this point, we were getting ready to terminate her. She, I, I spent like eight months. She wasn't the perfect probationer. Um, going up the elevator, I asked her, so now that you're about to get off probation after the judge signs this, what, are you, what is it that you're going to do next? And it's a question that I've always asked the kids. And usually they're, they're very honest. You know, they'll be like, well, I'm going to go smoke. I'm going to go party. And, you know, the door opened, you know, I, I walked out of the elevator and she kind of stood there and she said, I'm not going to change nothing, sir. And I'm like, why not? That's a very interesting answer. She's like, well, I'm doing good. My child needs me. You know, my life is positive. I have a job. Why would I change anything? Why would I go back to my old friends who have never come to me and asked me, hey, do you need anything? Do you need help? Why would I change that? Why would I go back to that? You know, mm. the connection was that this individual or this client would still call, you know, months and years after that. You know, connections such as a kid inviting you to his Marine Corps graduation, knowing that this probation officer, a Marine, helped him out, and now he wants to be part of that graduation you know, inviting you to their graduation ceremony because you were the one that forced them and urged them not to quit. So wow. it's the behavior. It should be the connection that we're making. And that I can tell you that a very big part is how we change the culture in the department. And that's where we're at. Our department, when MI started to now, we went in and we did a complete culture restructuring. Everybody in the El Paso County Juvenile Justice Center that deals with clients will get trained in motivational interviewing. And then they get tested, you know, to see that we are utilizing MI with fidelity. They have to submit recordings. It's not just a one and done. It's not the flavor of the month. We have adopted MI as our basic and foundational communication skill. Wow. In the world of corrections, I can tell you that at least El Paso County, you know, is utilizing MI. 
Yeah, and, I, I hear that. Oh, sorry, Julio. And, no, no, and that's that's pretty much it. So for me, I, I totally agree with you, Mr. Porter. Behavior change is not all that matters. I think there are many other factors, and 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 it's going to depend on your your field of expertise, the school, the the nursing, you know, wh whatever it is. Um, but yeah, to me, it's about that connection and and the behavior. You know, only the client will tell. All right. Wow. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. What a um, what a nice. Um, description and sort of a testimony of, of the work you're doing, but not only you, the whole department, and embracing a, a, something like motivational interviewing, which sometimes is just the things that opens the door to letting people do what they naturally want to do. Kathy, what are, what are you thinking about right now? Yeah, I, I thank you, Leo, for such a you know description of that story you told. It's it's powerful that connection that can be formed person with person, and then the sense of well departmentally and you know as you go from sort of the 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 inner to the the outside to the bigger culture change, you know that's what I'm encouraged with. It's sort of um, I know we were sort of doing a nosedive into negativity there at one point. Um, but the toxicity in the system, you know, it's it's important to pay attention to that. And therefore, the cultural changes that are some in their infancy, some, you know, are, are making great ground. And I'm encouraged. I do see um, quite a significant shift in policy that sports them practice because I don't I don't think you know I do believe yes in the moment am I one practitioner one person needing help wow you can you know really have a meaningful helpful uh, conversation that can help that person grow and that is without a doubt I don't think anybody is um, debating that the fo over focus on measures of outcomes and and targets is what can distort how um, our services or teams or the individuals within those teams can practice and operate. And that's, I think, where I'm very um, encouraged and I think where my uh, main focus on in my training work is to work alongside teams and within their organization, very much looking at that infrastructure that supports the culture that allows growth, um, despite a lot of the challenges. And, you know, you're talking about individual, Julio, you were talking about individual, um, you know, people who struggle to change from something that's a really, uh, you know, cruel and uh, and terrifying life. And it, that process of change needs to be understood and supported. And I think the same goes for our, our, our teams and our, our organizational cultures that with, um, with the trust, <laughs> with the process, with the con continued sort of building 
of a better evidence base than that isn't only you know uh, outcomes based but is also process um, measured then there's there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel uh, but it does require I think a, a lot of resilience and a lot of you know a lot of discussion um, and a lot of unpacking to really um, get to the core of so that we don't become this mechanistic you know what Heather is describing that sort of uh, um, misuse it's a, you know we talk about substance misuse misuse of MI you know MI misuse you know that sort of type of thing that where it's uh, you know it's 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 distorted out of all recognition to meet the actual um, counters of targets and outcomes and that's that's that that's criminal i think if you know for for human humanity and for people who need good connections like julio's talking about yeah, yeah i was going to say julio is a wonderful example of how the system can change you know through champions i guess is the word i'll use like julio who really embraces the true spirit <laughs> of approaches like the humanistic component and understanding why people do what they do rather than you know punishing them for not doing what they should do and it's just wonderful I mean I know Julio everyone around you is probably um feeling the same you know benefiting from from what you're bringing to correction so I, I do have to sign off but I want to thank everybody so much at this point it's been a wonderful discussion all right well thank you so much for for joining us um, and we'll see you somewhere around the planet sometime again. Um, so have a lovely afternoon and we'll carry on. Thank you, Heather. I just saw someone write is, is misuse of MI an oxymoron and I, yeah, I agree. It is an oxymoron, so, <laughs> but, um, Hopefully it, it, it sort of uh, said what I wanted it to say. So, I go think, ahead, Steve. Yeah, I think the thing is, it's not a coincidence that MI, something like motivational interviewing is being distorted in the interest of pursuing behavior change outcome at all costs, because that's precisely what is happening and does happen in education and in sport and I've seen it in the way I conduct my own behavior at home. So it's a problem, a challenge in all of us. You know, I'm not trying to externalize it and say, I'm, I noticed it today with my 10 year old, okay? There's a way of being with other people that is over-focused on, on behavioral outcomes. And it's, it's, it, 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 it undermines growth and learning. I think that's, probably the closest I can get to the essence of it. And um, the wider the, the wider ramifications of this strike me as more um, toxic. You know, I think we can rescue MI, but that's another topic. If, if you're interested, I can happy to explain. Well, there was a, there was an interesting question from Maria. Um, so she's really interested in MI in relation to COVID-19 vaccination. Do you have any resources to help me train community health workers work through 
decision process with community members. Now, we, we, we gave this a go earlier in the year around vaccine hesitancy and, and MI. And, and as you were talking earlier, Steve, I was thinking about, you know, now more than ever that time to try to influence people to make a specific, specific behavioral choice, which is to become vaccinated is more pressing than ever. And, it, and it's, you know, it, it's such a big topic yeah. Um, yeah. around the world. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's and and there's and there's at this point I heard somebody saying uh, this week that if somebody is not getting vaccinated and when when in if they're in a place where vaccines are available it's a choice right because all the information's out there you know it's a choice and so what about that what about when people have already made up their mind and they have their own arguments and reasons and the choice they're making fits their values and they're choosing not to do not to engage in a behavior change it doesn't have to be vaccination yeah they've already made up their mind yeah you know joe most most people who've got concerns about vaccination are not firmly against it they're ambivalent okay it's a small proportion of people who are anti-vax, so to speak. The majority of, of folk who are not in favor of vaccinations are stuck in the middle and they're hesitant for legitimate reasons. And that the, the, the vaccine hesitancy conversation highlights this issue we're talking about, which is the more in, in conversation with somebody with vaccine hesitancy, you focus on getting them to agree with your view, the poorer will be your outcome. So that when we worked with some people who are doing this every day of their lives, pediatricians who do vaccine consultations all the time, what we found was that good practice involves accepting where someone is with us, giving them information if they want it, and accepting whatever decision they make. And that, that's a skillful and very restrained activity, but it prevents you from going down the path of trying to actually correct the way someone's thinking. Because that, you know, that's um, dangerous and leads to poorer outcomes, poorer vaccine uptake. You get better uptake if you accept what someone is feeling about it. So, yeah. So in a way, it, 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 that reinforces some of the conclusions we're beginning to reach here. Get the process right. Don't worry about the outcome. And the person will make the decision that they feel is best for themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that supporting autonomy and now acceptance, um, you know, being part of the spirit of motivational interviewing was one of the things that grabbed me when I read the first edition that you and Bill wrote. And you know, coming from a a background in, in, in substance abuse, you know, you you know that was just denial that somebody is is making a choice to continue using drugs or alcohol despite having negative consequences in their life, as as opposed that was just denial and it needed to be combated and confronted and obliterated and then you know the person would change, but that I think is a very fundamental aspect. Of, of what we're talking about, at least from a practitioner's perspective, 
or a helper's perspective is accepting that there will be some people who actually choose not to make changes despite it creating harm in their lives and the lives of others. Yep. You know, even if you get into euthanasia and people choosing to die. Yep. As opposed to live with a, a chronic, you know, debilitating condition. Yep. Perhaps I should say that I, I, I feel that in the motivational interviewing field, we fell into this very trap for a good 20 years, I would say, of defining motivational interviewing as something that's the goal of which is to help someone change their behavior. I think it was a mistake. In the light of the, the discussion that we're having now, it, it confirms my feeling that that was a mistake, and we fell into the same trap. So I noticed Matt's is interested in, in, in uh, the chat column about how one might redefine it. And I don't think it's a, it'll be a surprise to him because we've got Alan Zakoff on this, on this uh, webinar, who's been incredibly influential in how we, we think about motivational interviewing. I, I feel it's a, it's, 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 it's a way of having a conversation that helps someone to grow as a human being. If they change the behaviors and outcome, that's okay. That's a good outcome. But that, in that sense, uh, motivational interviewing can and should be widened in its definition, and that is indeed what is happening. Uh, I'm doing that with Bill Miller right now, uh, and that's not that's not some invention of mine. It's just a reflection of the mistakes we've made in the past, and of the incredible value of the work that many of our colleagues are doing. Some of whom on this call, like Alan Zakov, and I, I have an idea. I have an idea, Steve, about how we can how we can wind up. Um, Julio, would it be okay with you if we swap your your seat on the panel out for Alan Zukov, and we can get Alan to come on? And what I would like to do is I'd like to hear Alan and Kathy have a conversation about this, and then Steve, you and I can just sit back. Yes, sir. Sounds great. Thanks, hey, Julio. Thanks so much for joining us, man. See you next time. Thank you. I've always loved speaking to Alan, so this will be a pleasure. <laughs> I really thought I was just going to get away with, you know, chatting away in the background uh, today. <laughs> <laughs> You're not able to uh, be below the radar, Alan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's always lovely to talk with you, Kathy. I, I have to say I'm not quite sure what Joel wants us to talk about. Uh, or. or oh, right. uh, I'd like to hear what your reflections are, and then you and Kathy just take off. Okay. Um, well, I, I mean, so much of what's been said today has been so close to my heart, and um, uh, and I appreciate uh, and, and feel a bit humbled by Steve's crediting me with with maybe more credit than I deserve um, uh, in in some of these ideas. I I, I think. It's always been my aspiration, and it was from early on in my involvement with MI, to bring the Rogerian and person-centered, not just skills, but philosophy and framework and way of thinking about people uh, even more to the fore in, in the way that we think about MI and practice MI and teach MI than than it was and and it's been very gratifying to me to see that happen over the years through many people's influences and so when steve says you know just now that he and bill are 
re reframing the focus of MI on helping people grow, uh, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm still, I'm still adjusting to that news. It's, that's uh, very exciting to me to, to hear that. And I would, and maybe I'll say one thing and then I'd love to hear your thoughts, Kathy. And I would say, and maybe this is just my contrariness that what's always been, you know, the reason why I still love MI after all these years and why I find it endlessly interesting is the tension, I don't know if it's a tension or that attempt to balance both of those elements, right? I mean, we have a person-centered world and person-centered practice that I've, I was trained in and I've dipped in and out of, and there's so much that's very beautiful in it. And MI has something that they don't have, which is that ability to focus, to to actually think about if I have a single conversation with someone, or if that's maybe all I'm going to be able to have, if I have 20 or 30 minutes to talk with someone who is struggling and, and who is uh, wrestling with, with, with the consequences of their behavior or unable to decide what's best for them, then I can do something in those 20 or 30 minutes through MI that I never could have done when I was a person-centered practitioner prior to MI. And, and, and so I think to me, it's that we want to help people grow and we have a structure and a set of skills and strategies and a framework for facilitating um, growth, maybe in a focused area in a relatively brief amount of time often. I mean, every MI practitioner, I think, has had that experience, uh, right, of in a single conversation, hearing someone go from, I don't really know about this, to by the end of the conversation being, you know, I think maybe I really do need, I don't think we should underplay how it, 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 it miraculous that is in 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 a certain sense it certainly feels that way to me uh i i worked with people who were grieving before for 18 months and being person-centered and gradually i was able to help them but you know we can help people faster and they don't have to suffer for as long and we can facilitate that those kind of processes and we can actually measure good outcomes. And if we're not foc if we're focused on measuring process, we will get good outcomes. Because when we create the conditions for change, people often, not always, but often, tend to change or move forward in their process. So that's kind of what I want to retain, or sort of how I want to I want to maintain both of those, you know both of those aspects as we think about what is MI and how should we conceptualize it. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> That's lovely, Alan. Yeah. It's, you know, it's that sense of you describing the, um, the, I suppose it sort of give you the, the, what's the, 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 the juice maybe in the client centered approach that, that the MI gave you the, the juice to actually help with that forward momentum and help clarify and get and, and, and relieve the distress 
much quicker because ambivalence obviously is the heart of lots of people getting stuck in growing in the direction that they may choose but struggle to do so and that's the sense of um being able to have a a, an intentional rather structured uh, and compassionate but uh, very focused conversation that is curious like lovely curiosity and i think that's for me where when i saw steve's comment about you know um sports and uh, education and all of that i can remember as a a mother of three boys going to primary school and i had these three beautiful delightful you know enthusiastic curious creative boys and they entered the education system and very quickly you know that creativity and spontaneity got reshaped and probably dulled and you know the juice was taken out almost (laughs) because of the you know need to to perform uh, to achieve to get the 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 measures you know whatever we want to call them perform i think that word is a really it 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 feels like if you're performing you're performing for someone else yeah exactly it's no it's no longer what you're doing from your own uh your own motives your own your heart heart Yeah. yeah yeah and i think that's for me you know the the one thing that i never get tired of is having those lovely curious but very focused conversations with people who are you know um either are feeling hopeless or you know come enter the conversation in a rather hopeless or even adverse way but to suddenly see that light you know grow grow brighter and grow brighter as they get maybe maybe i'm overstating it here but i sense this sense of excitement again this reconnection with themselves not so much with me but with them Mm -hmm. and that to me is just joyful every time every time and there's not a conversation that doesn't uh bring something that just uh, you know the toxicity that we have touched on you know it, it just sort of totally disappears because this is you know the the real art and joy of being with someone as they discover themselves and you're the guide who's helping them you know really uh, focus and, and and intentionally sort of direct themselves to where they want to go so. you did joe joe i was the, i was just thinking Kathy, that came up was you know the antidote for toxicity. <laughs> you know, oh, for um, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it is, and and I feel, I feel bad for people. Honestly, I mean, I think we have to have a certain compassion for those who are trapped in that ugly machine. Right, that when you are focused on not the way as Steve was describing earlier, you know, sort of focused only on outcomes, and or when you are, as you were saying, Kathy, you know, somehow you've turned everything into performance and targets. It's not only toxic for the recipient; it's toxic for the practitioner. It saps 
your own soul, your own spirit to be part of that. And I think of Julio saying earlier in, 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 that he doesn't work as hard now that he's doing MI. I would say I work very hard when I'm doing MI because it takes a lot of focus. And at the same time, it doesn't drain me the way you get drained when you are trying to push or force or get people to achieve an outcome, to perform up to standards or whatever it is. So what I want to do now is I want to do a, I want to do a pause right quick because technically we've gone the hour and a half, we've gone the distance. We still have about 79 people here so we can continue the conversation. Um, Steve's had to jump off to go pick up his son. And I know that Andrew's going to have to leave soon too. So now I get to drive the ship. Um, and we'll, we'll see what we can do with that. Um, so Angie, if you need to go, it's great to see you as usual and much appreciate you producing this webinar for us all. Oh, it's an absolute honor, Joel. And um, my thanks to all the panelists today. It's been privileged just to be a part of this conversation. Thank you, everyone. Can you can you please post the link to the Guardians of the National Treasure again? Yes, just, just one more time. So, um, you know what Steve and I always say about what Ralph does is every every um, every penny he gets goes straight into the hands and into the people. Um, it goes from the ATM to the um, to the to the kitchens to the sports equipment to everything. There's no management um, clipping the ticket there. So anything you could do from a dollar to whatever is greatly appreciated. Um, all right. Well, Andrew, we'll see you next month. You take care. Bye. Talk to you soon. Thank Bye -bye. you. So what, what I'd like to do is I'd like to just anybody else who'd like to join in the conversation, just put your name up in the chat and we'll bring you on board and we can open it up to carry on where Alan and Kathy had gotten to the point that they had talked to in the conversation um, around, you know, motivational interviewing and, and how things aren't as dark as they can become when we, when we focus on what we can do and realize that actually people are getting benefit from, from having the, op I think a lot of what we do is we try to, I try to do, is create an opportunity for people as opposed to try to change people. Um, and it takes a lot of pressure off my shoulders um, to feel like there's some outcome that's dependent on something that I'm supposed to do in, that, in the time that I have with somebody. And what something like motivational interviewing has done for me is it's created a, a nice way to create that opportunity by the you know, client-centered, empathic engagement with people from the beginning to try to let them be heard and hear themselves talk about what they're struggling with in a different way than usual. And I think that's some of what Julio is talking about for sure. And what goes into that equation is pretty complex when you start to take it apart and Heather had put it, started putting all these different ingredients on the table. Um, and then we think about broader environment. I know that Mike Clark put up in his, in the comment and what Julio was talking about, we're talking about an individual and the environment and the systems that they, that they, that they live and work and thrive in, or maybe not thrive so much. Yeah. 
So that's that's kind of where I'm at with this. And you know, behavior change, you know, yeah, it's important, but there are other things as well. And it's interesting because I suppose um, many of us will have had the experience when we're training um, practitioners in MI that regardless of uh, how many years they may have been working in the area or field that they're working in, that having an opportunity to think differently themselves about what they've done. And they get, you know, this excitement that I think is um so beautiful when you see it that someone you know their their whole spirit sort of just reawakens because they sort of think oh my goodness you know I, I remember one lady who I, I trained this has gone back a, a number of years ago but it stuck with me and she said um she was maybe a year away from retirement and she had been a psychiatric nurse for um 30 years and she felt that you know she had nothing more to learn and she came and she did a foundational workshop and then came back for a little bit more and she just said she came up to me afterwards and that's what she said she said you know Kathy you know I, I came here just really because you know I thought well I'll, you know I'll amuse myself rather than you know having any particular real goal as to why she wanted to come to the workshop it was being offered through her work and um she, you know, filled a place, I suppose, that sort of way. And she said, you know, she's just, she couldn't wait to get back to her work, you know, to, to try some of the ideas that she had um, been thinking about as she had begun to grapple with viewing the change process in a different way mm. and how she could maybe, her changes that were needed rather than this effort to change others. And, um, you know, that, that's a, a good reason <laughs> to keep, you know, to keep the faith, I suppose, in the sense that there is lots and lots. This is not a single occurrence. This happens all the time. So there's something in learning motivational interviewing. And, you know, I'm, I learned motivational interviewing. I've been learning it. Uh, for over 20 years, 23, four years, I've been, you know, trying to become better and better, a better helper. And I still have, you know, I still get excited. <laughs> I still have lots to keep, you know, fine tuning and fine tuning. It's lovely. Yeah, it was interesting. And, and Alan, Steve, Steve dropped a pretty big bomb. And then he left. Of course. <laughs> as he likes to do, yes. As he's wont to do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would love it so much. And, and, Mike and, dropped um, and he's gone. <laughs> and, you know, and I think I, I agree with you, Kathy. You know, sometimes I wonder, is like, okay, what else is there to know about motivational interviewing? And then Steve goes, oh, we're going to thrive and grow. And I'm going, oh, okay. That's like, you know, putting compassion in the spirit. It's like, oh, well, that's different. Um but this, but I was thinking specifically in our conversation, right? Because in in the in our little MI world, we talk about you know behavior change or target behaviors or change goals. So how are we going to come up? I mean, I I, I got some ideas, but I'm like about thrive and grow, right? Because it was easier, like if you're talking about focusing and what are we talking about, you know, you know. So so I hear you're struggling to thrive and grow. Where would you like to start? 
<laughs> so, so Joe, you know, I'm thinking about some of what Heather was saying earlier, and and I really liked um, her, you know, her wrestling with the way she was wrestling with um, how to think about all of this in the context of depression and therapy for depression, and her transition from thinking primarily about measuring how people feel and mood to thinking about where behavior plays a role in that and how that's, I think, I, I, I think, you know, so how, how do people thrive and grow? Well, they thrive and grow in part when they feel that someone else is seeing them as someone who has a value and potential and capacity for growth, right? And so that's so much of what the spirit and what, what our client-centered way of being with people is about. And I also think people grow or, or thrive often by figuring out what could I do differently in my life that would give me more of what I need to thrive and grow. So I don't think it's an opposite of behavior change. I don't think it's, I don't think they're, oh. they're different. Right. I, but I, I think by broadening the scope, we may, by saying we start with the goal of MI is about helping people grow. We maybe can avoid the trap that Steve and, and Kathy and, and, you know, others have been talking about on this webinar of, of performance culture, target culture, getting caught up in measuring outcome and losing sight of process. Um, if you start from growth, then it becomes a question of, all right, well, how do you help people then identify the changes that they believe will help them grow? And then how do you help them resolve ambivalence about making those changes and then take the, the steps needed in order to be able to act on, right? So it all becomes but part of a, the process, but it, it, it broadens the frame in a way that I think has the potential to maybe, maybe if not avoid, at least counter the trap of the way MI, someone, I forget who I asked, you know, can you misuse MI? Well, I don't think you can misuse MI if you do MI correctly, but you can, as Steve said, you can distort MI and, and you try to use a distorted version of MI to make things happen. And maybe that growth model will help us counter that distortion and, and help create a, a healthier uh, frame for people to understand what does it mean to adopt MI as a practice, as an individual, as an agency. And listening to how beautifully you said that, Alan, the thing that was coming up in my mind and your question Joel you know this sort of sense of you know how you help someone focus you know <laughs> uh, uh, what is it we're actually talking about here and I you know I think the sense of um, when you have a conversation with someone in this way I the, the word behavior really you know for me is you know somewhere in the background Often, mostly in the background, it's more a sense of, you know, that what I said at the beginning was that, you know, to me, MI works from the inside out. So what we're trying to do is evoke and what, what that evoking process um, creates 
in the clarifying for the person clarifying for them as you be that good guide in this structured conversation is, is that they get to understand what it is they believe and who they are and what they value and what's important. And that is a, you know, just a, 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 a very precious conversation that is quite unusual. You know, it's not something that we bump into, I, I believe, um, as often as we need to. <laughs> but we, you know, we have, as a, an MI practitioner, you know, that question around, you know, how I might reflect or how I might affirm or how I might use some of the skills and some of the strategies of MI to help someone to help someone sort of uh, hear what they have said with a slight reframe or whatever mm. can help create that sort of light bulb moment of this is what I actually believe. Kathy, if I could give a, 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 a clinical example, I think that speaks right to what you're describing. And I'll just make it brief. Love it. Um, and this is just from about a month ago, a, con a conversation in the context of a, a patient in an emergency room coming to the emergency room. She came in because of an, an incident, whatever it was, but she had been flagged for her excessive use of opioid pain medication, which, as you may know, in the U.S. in particular, is, is an enormous epidemic and the source of enormous suffering and pain and death. Um, and so I was, my, I was having a, a conversation with her which was really focused on evoking motivation for change and potentially uh, connecting her with a treatment program if she wanted that, if she wanted to change, facilitating that process. And in the course of the conversation, what she talked about was, um, you know, she had various reasons for wanting to go on using pills and concerns about it. But when things began to shift was when she began to, when she said, you know, um, my friends, they tell me they miss the old me because I used to be somebody who was social and fun and, and now I spend so much of my time just on the couch and I don't socialize. I don't, and, and I just sort of, I don't know, I just reflected that in some way. And then she said, and I miss the old me too. Okay. And all of a sudden, right? That that's that moment that you're describing. That moment of the sh the shift. It's not about that moment. Was not about behavior change. It was about a change in her perception, an awareness of who she was, who she is now, and the discrepancy, the gap between those, and who she wants to be. Right. Um, and from that point forward. That became the mantra of the session, as you can imagine. I must have reflected or summarized some version of that half a dozen times over the next 10 minutes. And every time I did, she lit up and she said more. Um, and by the end of the conversation, she was saying, yeah, I really do think I need to do something about my pill use. I... So there's a behavior change at the end of it. Yeah. Right. But my focus in the conversation was not trying to get her to change her pill use. It was not on the behavior change. It was helping her get in touch with who she wanted to be, who she was, how she was seeing herself, and how that had somehow, how she'd lost 
touch with who she really want, is and wants to be. And that becomes a motivation for change. And I think that's that inside out process that you're talking about is, 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 is what happens. Um, and so the, it's, the, it's creating the process, which if you create the process and you're able to do that effectively, often ends up with the person deciding to make a behavior change rather than trying to get them to change the behavior. It's a byproduct, really, isn't it? It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct. <laughs> Alan, I, I'm, I'm, as you were talking, I was, I was, I started chuckling within myself because I remember the story you told me about the supervisor you had and the, and the client and the hand raising. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... So, well, so that was actually that was a. Some of you may know him, Ernesto Spinelli. Ernesto Spinelli is a British client-centered existential therapist who came and did a, uh, a seminar that I attended. And his, his the point of, of the story was that he thought he knew exactly what uh, all the things he was doing that was creating the change in his client. And then he talked to the client about what he thought had created it, and the client said. Actually, I don't remember that conversation. What really changed me was this moment when I was saying something and you went like this and suddenly everything, uh, and his point was, was, and it was a very good point that I have never forgotten. And I'm glad you remember it too, Joel, is how important it is for us to be humble about what we know and what we think we know. Um, but what I would, I guess my slight pushback, or what I, one of the things I love about MI is so often when we're doing MI, we're not just, making assumptions about what is leading to change in the person our responding leads them to say certain th and if, if they don't respond the way we expect then we know that what we thought we were doing isn't what the client was hearing and i think it's the i think one of the the, the great things about mi is this process moment to moment process that happens whereas you learn what to look for and how to understand What's the effect of what I'm saying? Um, you can you can realize, oh, I thought I was having this effect, but in fact, it turns out I'm not. And let me change what I'm doing, not later, but right now in the moment yeah. to, to, to speak more to what this person needs or to address where they are. Sometimes we just never know what it is in the experience or the interaction we have with somebody that's helpful or harmful. Right. And, you know, you just never know. And but I, I think that one of the things that I've become more conscious of or even or better at is sometimes choosing that something to reflect on that might to the person seem like an offhanded remark that they just made. And that for something about that, like, you know, my friends really miss me. And then to reflect on that and then they hear it back that opens up a door that they hadn't even thought of. And, and I, and it's, this could take us on a whole alley that I won't go down having to do with um, understanding what used to be called unconscious process as unarticulated uh, self understandings. And that that's really what MI in many respects does, but from a training perspective, all I'll say is that's one of the hardest things I think for people to learn so often when practitioners are trained, they're trained to focus on whatever the client presents with the most intensity, because it seems like that's where the action is. 
And what we learn in MI is often it is the offhand, the, the, the seeming aside, the thing the person said under their breath, the thing that they didn't say with intensity that actually carries a great deal of meaning such that if we hear that and we reflect it, it opens something that the client themselves didn't didn't realize was there until just as you said Joel until they hear it back and they and they suddenly oh yeah that actually is a bigger deal so learning to well learning to hear change talk or the or the opportunities for evoking change talk which is really what that is instead of focusing on whatever the person says with the greatest emphasis or with 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 the greatest negative affect especially is a big shift, I think, for many MI mm-hmm. practitioners. It certainly was for me. Yeah. Well, Kathy, you want to sum us up and take us out? <laughs> oh, Don't you love when Joel does that? <laughs> <laughs> don't think I could I'm too busy sort of still thinking about this but um I suppose in a nutshell for me what this conversation and the process of this conversation has been rather you know rather intriguing because it's gone around a number of areas that are fundamental to being um helpful to people you know, the, the, it's just at an organizational level, at, a, at an individual level, um, how we think about those conversations that we have and how we can over-focus on behavior and, you know, targets, performance, outcomes, those drivers. You know, it, it reminded me a little bit of at one point when the whole uh, research uh, was gathering, really becoming very uh, interesting around change talk. And we went to um, lots of, had lots of discussions and debates around that. And one phrase stood out for me as in, you know, the big red light, do not go there, do not become a change talk chaser. Do you remember that sort of term? Yeah. we criticized, you know, this sort of research uh, through that lens of, you know, well, you know, if you, you, you do that mm-hmm. at the peril, because then it, be, it loses the heart. It loses the heart of MI. So it's technique over substance, really. Um, and whilst you, we've got much more um, informed and we understand a lot more about the artfulness of uh, reflecting change talk in a helpful way with not ignoring sustained talk and knowing when and how to sort of titrate this, then, you know, that's then again back to the advanced skillfulness. So, you know, yeah, there's, you know, again, performance-driven actions um, without integrity are hollow. I suppose there's my sum up. <laughs> That's the best That's I can. A nice sum up. That's a nice sum up of a very, very, very robust conversation. Yeah. So I, I guess what I want to do, Matt, thank you for coming along and jumping in the chat. And my my hope is that, you know, I know my hope is that we've that the conversation has just evoked lots of questions 
It's been affirming to what people are thinking and feeling that they may not have expressed and that these questions and ideas can get carried out into workplaces and conversations we have with our colleagues as we go as to exactly what are we doing it, why are we doing it, and how are we doing it. Um, Alan, Kathy, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to see two such good friends and to be able to hang out and, and talk shop. Um, and I'm sure we'll be meeting again um, in time. So you guys take good care. Everybody take good care. We appreciate you hanging out, the, the, the trusting um, and the committed 45 people that are still here. Um, and we'll see y'all next time. And um, this will be up on YouTube probably in the next 24 hours, and we'll have our podcast out within the next 48. So that's all I got to say. Thank, thank you, Joel, you. and thank you, Kathy. It's thank been you, Kathy. Yes, pleasure as always. All right, we'll see you around. Thank you. Yes, it is good fun. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, y'all. Read the poo ball. Yee-haw, book em.